electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, thanks a lot, John. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for Scott Wapner. The slide in semis. Micron, now the second company and as many days to warn about revenue. And it comes as President Biden signs the CHIPS Act, giving billions in subsidies to that sector. We will discuss what's ahead for the group, the state of tech, and of course, stocks overall. But now we have to introduce our investment committee today. Jim Liebenthal, Anastasia Amorosa, iCapital Chief Investment Strategist, and right here with me on set, Stephanie Link and downtown Josh Brown. Josh, we actually spent the weekend together, believe it or not. Not like that. Let's get a check on the markets this hour. It meant nothing to me, Frank. <laughs> the major average is all lower right now. The Nasdaq, the biggest loser, falling for a third straight day because of the weakness in semis. Uh, semis themselves counting for about a third to about a half of those declines, shifting a bit right now. The 10-year yield coming in at 2.781%. you got to remember, just about a month ago, it was 30 basis points higher. And this is where we began. we got to start with chips, of course. That's where this conversation has to start. Micron issuing a revenue warning, very concerned about its revenue. Also issuing a warning about free cash flow on the heels, actually right before the CHIPS Act was signed, but we knew it was coming. I'm going to start off with you, Stephanie and Josh. Stephanie, you feel free to jump in first. Um, What's your take on chip stocks right now? I know you are an owner of chip stocks as well. I own one. I sold most of them in March because I was afraid of double ordering, double and triple ordering. And I think that's what's going on right now. We had a very last couple of years. We had a very tight market. We had supply issues and you had strong demand boosted by the stay at home kind of theme. Right. And you, you had double ordering just to make up for the demand, just to meet the demand. Right. So now fast forward to today and you have improving supplies, right? And you have tough comparisons, especially in, uh, in uh, gaming and in PCs, not in data center. And that's the area that I'm actually in. That's I own uh, Broadcom uh, because that's mainly the data center play, enterprise play. But PCs are under pressure. We've been hearing about that from a number of companies. And as I mentioned, gaming, right? So we've got to get through this inventory build. Uh, and I think you have to be very, very selective. And that's why I own Broadcom because, again, data center, it's cheap at 13 times. That is a 3% yield. 49% of their uh, revenues are software because they've been doing a lot of M&A over the years. So I kind of feel like they're insulated. But it's down today, too, Frank. It's not immune by any means. Yeah, I don't think any, any chip stock is immune in any way today. Yeah. Josh, I'm going to come over to you. You actually own NVIDIA. Yeah. Talk to us. Talk to us through your emotions right now as you see that revenue warning. Is it an emotional moment at all? It's, it's not, because if you understand the nature of where that revenue warning is coming from, it's two very specific areas within NVIDIA and not really the, the main growth engine. The reason most people own NVIDIA is not um, for video, you know, the video gaming space. So that's going to ebb and flow. It always has. NVIDIA is up about 46,000% since its IPO in 1999. It's in a 40% drawdown. There have been many 40% drawdowns along the way. So from my perspective, NVIDIA is not the issue. The bigger issue is the chip sector overall Um, For a couple of years now, I've been saying I think the semiconductors are the new transports. And when you look at this group, 
had a vicious bounce off the low, uh, really started that bounce before most of the market in late June and has led the market higher. A lot of these are growth companies and growth companies have done very well when bond yields have come in, when oil prices have come in. Unfortunately, uh, I think we're in a position now where we're going to have to watch whether or not that semi uh, index, the SMH is the way to follow along from home via ETFs. We're going to have to watch a retest here. They are headed right back to that 200 day from whence they broke out from. The, uh, the, uh, the downtrend now is, is still intact. And some of the biggest companies in that group are saying the same things. Demand is not going to be what it was last year. And next year looks cloudy. So I think it's going to be a tough space. I don't have a lot of other names in this group. And I'm really not looking right now to add. From Wentz. I think, Josh, you might be more emotional than you think you are. From Wentz. Old-timey talk. You don't hear that very often. Um, obviously, some price target cuts for NVIDIA. Craig Hallam uh, cutting the price from 210 to 180. Mizuho from 290 to 250. But Kathy Wood still buying 60 million shares of NVIDIA. I know who's a seller, though. Jim Liebenthal, you're actually selling NVIDIA. Yeah. Um, this is not uh, in any way opposed to what Josh just said. Um, both on the sector and specifically to the name. This is a high-quality name, um, and I do believe that chips uh, in the long-term future are exactly where you want to be. But we're going into uh, what is obviously an economic growth slowdown, and we've had a nice bounce off the bottom here. And I'm very overweight in chips. Uh, so I own uh, NXP Semiconductors and Qualcomm. Uh, and before yesterday, I owned NVIDIA as well. Um, I decided to trim in the space, and NVIDIA came right to the top of the list just because I've got this combination of being overweight, it's got a high multiple, and it uh, cut its revenue guidance. I put that all together, and I just want to watch NVIDIA from the the sidelines. I may be back into it, but uh, with the combination that I just talked about, um, it's a good time to take that off the table when I'm looking to trim chips. But in the long run, I completely believe in the space. This is just a speed bump to get through, both for the sector and that name. Yeah, you know, speaking of the space, obviously the CHIPS Act signed today by President Biden, $53 billion in incentives for the sector. So, Anastasia, I want to turn to you. Um, obviously, this is a low point for CHIPS, two days of revenue warnings in a row. It's hard to not think that there might be another one coming down the pike. But what does the CHIPS Act make you think about this sector and at least its prospects in the near term? Yeah, Frank, I mean, obviously, it's a good thing that there is now a domestic push to incentivize domestic chips production and also invest longer term in semiconductor R&D. But my take on it, it is more symbolic than it is game changing. And OK, 50 plus billion dollars is going to add a little bit more to the CapEx efforts that are otherwise happening. I think it's 190 billion otherwise. So it's going to help on the margin. But the reason why I say it's symbolic and not game changing is the U.S. is not the only country that is doing this. Uh, European Union passed something very similar. You've got Japan, you've got China, you've got Taiwan. All of them are pushing in the same direction as well. And globally, there's something like 800 billion of these incentives and subsidies that are going to be going to the semiconductor space. So I think it's helpful, but it's not game changing. And I don't disagree with anything that was just said on the semiconductor semiconductor space. I very much like the trade from a secular perspective. But if you think about what needs to happen in semiconductors, there's a number adjustment of adjustments that need to happen. First of all, we need to right size the demand for personal computing chips and memory. But the second thing that I'm worried about that I think may still come is we might have to revise down the expectations for cloud capex. How much are companies like Amazon and Alibaba and Facebook are going to spend on expanding their cloud capex? 
And I think that number is going to be significantly lower in 2023 than it was this year and maybe what analysts expect. So I think we are not done with the reset broadly in semiconductors. I probably wouldn't buy the sector broadly. But as we go lower, uh, you want to buy those secular winners. But once you've had the cyclical adjustment. It's interesting, Frank, that Micron just reported on June 30th and it's been right. five weeks and yeah. And they lowered numbers back then, too, right? So numbers were coming down, and it got even worse. So there's a reason why it trades at 6.9 times earnings. It's a cyclical company, and things can change very, very quickly. Yeah, um, certainly cyclical. Um, but turning to the broader picture of tech right now, um, obviously, semiconductor is one piece of it. But we have a big tech story to talk about right now, mega cap tech. Amazon actually down a percent and a half today, um, looking for a catalyst for that right now. But in general, tech's been doing very well in the second half of the year, up about 14 percent almost in the second half of the year. Josh, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Where are you at with mega cap tech? Are, do you have your money in there? Are you moving to different areas? Are you more defensive right now? A lot of notes out today saying that tech may not be as defensive as many investors believe it is. Well, first, I would just say that Amazon is really more of uh, treated as a consumer story than a tech story for the most part. And if you look at consumer discretionary, Amazon is down in line with that group. Home Depot's off 2% today. Nike's off 3.5%. Um, BBY of 3%. So, I, look, a- Amazon, Amazon, obviously, the big growth driver here is the cloud, but the stock tends to get treated like a consumer play. And the consumer plays have all had a very big rally because of falling uh, oil and gas prices. And that might be going into reverse now, or that market might be finding some sort of stasis. And if that's the case, there's not as much of a tailwind for these consumer-oriented stocks. So I think Amazon gets lumped in with them, and it's just something that if you're along the name, you, ha- you have come to accept already. All right, Stephanie, coming over to you. Uh, B of A with a note today saying record inflows into tech last week. Their records dating back to 2008. Obviously, a lot of confidence in tech when you're talking about investors. Where are you at with mega cap tech? Yeah, I'm underweight. I've been underweight tech all year, actually, and comm services. And if you add the two together, it's 35% of the S&P 500. So clearly, if tech does well, the markets do well. And that's what we've been seeing over the last month, month and a half. I think you have to be very selective. As I mentioned, I own uh, Broadcom. It's cheap. It's a special situation within semis. I like Accenture. They just all they do is beat and raise and, and that and they are so well capitalized and they're, they're doing a ton of M&A. IBM is my value play and it's held up remarkably well year to date. It's been one of the best technology stocks year to date. And you get a nice dividend yield while that turnaround happens. Fortinet, I got hit on last week when they reported. I bought some more because I do like cybersecurity. The total addressable market is just extreme. And, and I just think we have to churn a little bit in the short term on that name. But I like it for the long term. So, Jim, we'll go over to you. I was actually talking to Tom Lee last week, and he said, uh, I don't know if it's mind-blowing, but he said less bad is good. And I was just like, wait, what do you mean? Say that one more time. He said less bad is good. We're looking at tech earnings up about 3%. So maybe not what we've seen in recent years, that tremendous growth when it comes to EPS. But is that good enough right now for the environment that we're in? Where are you at with mega cap tech? Yeah, Frank, I think your word choice is very telling. Good enough? Sure. You know, there's nothing in what you said or how I'm going to respond that is other than meh. Um, and what I mean by that is I've been consistent with this all year. I don't think you're going to see any multiple expansion from Apple, Microsoft, Google, the names that you have up on the screen right now. And so what that means is the share price appreciation from here is all going to be earnings per share growth. 
And depending on the company, that's somewhere between eight and 12% uh, earnings per share growth. That's fine. You know what? Nothing to, nothing to uh, uh, wave your hand and say it isn't good. But I do see better earnings per share growth and the potential for multiple expansion outside of technology and the more cyclical names. That's because of a thesis I have that everybody knows about supply chain onshoring. Not everybody agrees. That's fine. But I have a thesis, and that's how I'm expressing it. Anastasia, over to you. I mean, we had a lot of talk actually yesterday about stretch valuations and things like that. And tech still is generally pretty pricey. Obviously, it's come down a bit over the last few months with some of the sell-off. But where are you at with it? Where is it at in the portfolios that you manage, underweight, overweight? Yeah, I mean, I think if we talk about the mega cap tech, I mean, these are going to be companies that, I mean, they're just mature. They're just not going to deliver the same earnings growth going forward. And I don't think there's anything to write home about for those names. They're going to get caught up in some of the same macro headwinds, whether it's the slowdown in ad spending, whether it's lower cloud expansion, whether it's lower enterprise spending. So I think they could probably hang in here and they're not expensive, but it's probably not the place that I'm most excited about. But Frank, looking at valuations, I actually am excited about the reset and certain valuations that we have seen. I mean, if you look at the NASDAQ broadly, we went from 35 times forward multiple to 23. We were a little bit lower than that. So I think that's a major valuation reset. And by the way, within that, you can probably find software companies that are actually profitable. They've had this major multiple reset. But even if you look more broadly, if you look at unprofitable tech, if you look at um, you know some of the growthier names, they're trading at a V to sales now that is slightly below long-term averages. So I think for investors thinking you know one year out, you know two years out, this is the time when we might actually be wanting to step back into this higher growth trade. I mean, don't do it all at once, but pick up some of the pieces and have a shopping list to execute now that the valuations have reset. So when you say higher growth trade, are there any particular areas within tech you're talking about? Like when we talk about fintech, I mean, I just cash app somebody some money yesterday. That's not going anywhere. We look at uh, uh, health tech. Uh, I'm trying to think, what is it? Telemedicine is what it's called? Yeah. Telehealth. Yeah, telehealth. There we go. Um, a lot of people, I, I had a doctor's appointment last week. The doctor just called me on, on a, a Zoom-ish type of thing. That's not going to change. That's only going to grow. So you're saying from a one to two year horizon, you have one point of view. But if you're a long-term holder, um, isn't tech the place you want to be right now? Because some of this stuff is so sticky and it's just not going to change back. Well, I think that's right. I mean, our my view has been that in the second half of the year, you do want to go back to the tech trade because a lot of the consumer discretion, a lot of the cyclical trade is likely going to slow down as we see the consumer slow down. And so I think that's why you see those inflows going back to some of the technology names. But to your question, Frank, about where exactly in tech, I would expand that greatly. I'm actually getting interested again in some of the themes and some of the thematics that have not worked at all this year. But if you look at electric vehicles, if you you look at uh, clean energy, if you look at some of the robotics and perhaps artificial intelligence names, I think these are the pieces you want to pick up for the long term. And again, they've seen a meaningful valuation reset already. All right. Turn our attention to the broader markets. NASDAQ down for a third straight day today. Obviously, the chip stocks weighing on it. Josh, I want to come over to you. Um, where are you at with the broader market right now? Are you feeling as bullish as some people are? No, I, I recognize that things aren't as bad as they looked. Uh, especially in light of a jobs report where despite the fact that we've got two consecutive quarters of contracting economic growth, we're still somehow adding three million jobs during those two quarters. So the old playbooks really don't work. The old uh, causality and things that you used to point to and say, I have a pretty good handle on what's happening economically. I think what it boils down to is we've got this bifurcated situation where you're looking at data, headline data, 
And it's hard to recognize the fact that people in the bottom, let's say, 25 percentile uh, of, of income earners are much more substantially hit by higher energy prices, unavailable borrowing uh, costs now. And, and that really is not affecting the higher end consumer. So you ask, like, how's the consumer doing? It's not monolithic. There are two different consumers. I think the good news is when gasoline prices fall 30 days straight, you get a lot of relief from that $50,000 income and below household. And there are a lot of them. Um, so that does make the data seem a little bit better. At the high end, nobody's slowing down at all. You, you really don't have to look very far to see that. You look at credit card data, debit card data. You look at restaurant data. Um, so it's a really difficult time to make grand pronouncements about the market, the economy. There's no real analogs you could point to that make any sense. So um, this is just what we have to accept as investors. There's uncertainty no matter what you do. The uncertainty now is at what point do we, do we hand off the torch of worry <laughs> from what the Fed's going to do to what's going to happen with earnings in 2023. I think there's still a little bit of gap of time now that we're a little bit less worried about the Fed. It's pretty clear that we've seen peak inflation on a lot of measures and earnings haven't yet rolled over. There are individual cases, but overall, the earnings picture is still okay. You know, you mentioned so, oil as yeah. being a help for the low end, but rents, B of A did a study, and Much rents 7.5% in July year over year. Right. Yep. So that's your problem. That's the sticky part of inflation. And so even if the data comes in good on jobs, which did, right, and even last week factory orders came in well and new orders within the ISMs were, came in above plan, that's all good, but you still have this inflation boogeyman, right? I mean, we got the ECI this morning that was really, really high. And yeah, I know it's backward looking, but it's, it's here. Right. I mean, inflation is here and the Fed is not pivoting. And that's why the, the tech trade has kind of rolled over. The growth trade has rolled over because the Fed is going to have to be tighter. You should, right. And you shouldn't want them to pivot, right? Oh, like right. If, you're, exactly. if you're trying to be like a, 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 even an intermediate term investor, I don't think it's a good sign if the Fed is so worried about what six rate hikes have done that they feel as though they have to stop. Yeah. Like that is not. So, so I hear a lot of people like, oh, you should be buying because the Fed's going to pivot. Really? That's what you want? <laughs> well, That's Josh, you really, really quick, want that? You were talking about grand pronouncements. I don't know if tomorrow's a grand pronouncement, but we certainly have a pronouncement on an inflation CPI out number out tomorrow at 830. Jim, I'm going to come over to you. Josh already decided we reached peak inflation, but we're going to actually find out tomorrow. While most people believe it's going to decline, where are you at with that CPI number? How much of a market mover do you see it being? I think I think it's pretty important. And this is not disagreeing with what Josh just said. I don't think we should be looking for a pivot from the Fed. For me, with my investment thesis of economic expansion and earnings growth, that's like having your mother come bail you out from a schoolyard fight. That's not what I'm looking for. Um, but I would like to see inflation come down, both for societal reasons and for economic reasons. And, and I think we're due, frankly. I, it's very rare that you see an economic series surprise to the upside as long as as inflation numbers have. Um, and when you look at some of the components, now Steph just pointed out where rent is, that's accurate. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, you've got commodities that are down, whether it's gasoline is down about 30% from its high, just looking at the futures, that hasn't fully shown up at the pump yet. Um, corn and wheat are back down to the levels, these are the futures that is, back down to the levels before the Ukrainian uh, uh, invasion. 
Um, you've got clear indications of supply chains starting to unclog and things like freight costs. So the question is, does that show up more than expected in the CPI number tomorrow? And if it does, I think that will give a nice tailwind to the stock market, not because the Fed's going to pivot. And I agree with Josh, you don't want them to pivot, but because it takes a little bit of the aggressiveness away so that maybe instead of 75 basis points, they do 50 basis points. But on that question of how much they raised in September, it's not just tomorrow's CPI or Thursday's PPI. It's the next month's readings as well. They need to see a clear trend and, and a big trend downward in the in the inflation numbers. Anastasia is going to give you last word on this one. CPI, big deal, little deal tomorrow. If inflation does, in fact, decline as many people expected, where do you see the market moving? Uh, I think a big deal. And I do agree with everybody. We're starting to see hints that inflation should finally be slowed, slowing down. I mean, if you look at the city inflation surprise index, it seems like it's peaked. It's rolling over a little bit. But it's all those factors that Jim mentioned. You also look at the food index. Uh, in July, the U.N. food index is down 9 percent. So that's a big deal for inflation. And I know and I agree with Steph that the, the uh, renter inflation is still likely to be sticky. But if you look at some of the alternative measures, if you look at the Zillow rent index, it is starting to decelerate just a little bit month over month. Earlier in the year, the last 12 months, it was really rising at one or two percent month over month. The latest reading is sub one percent. So maybe just maybe we're starting to be on the cusp of these lower inflation readings. So as long as we don't blow out the headline expectations for tomorrow, I think the markets will actually be able to hang in on whatever print we get. Yeah, Steph, great point. I don't know too many landlords that are planning to reduce their rents. Gas prices might go down. Too, right? yeah, it's pretty hard. It's awfully hard. All right, a lot more have time coming up. Check out this mystery chart. It's the best stock in the Dow over the past month and one of the best performers in the S&P 500 over that entire time. Two of our committee members, they own it. We'll debate the trade coming up next, and halftime is back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. And welcome back to Halftime, our mystery chart revealed. Boeing, the best stock in the Dow over the past month and up more than 20% since July 1st, second half of the year. The company getting a big boost from the FAA yesterday and releasing delivery numbers today. Our Phil LeBeau breaking it all down for us. Hey, Phil. 
Hey, Frank, you know, the July numbers actually very strong in terms of deliveries relative to where Boeing has been in recent months. So when you look at the orders and deliveries, I'd say July was a strong month, highlighted by the order for 100737 MAX-10s uh, that we announced with uh, them or they announced with us uh, over at the Farnborough Air Show. Overall, 126 in the month of July. Deliveries, that's a five-month low for deliveries, but the delivery orders should start to increase from here in part because, as you mentioned, the FAA has approved the inspection protocol process for the 787 Dreamliner. What does that mean? That means that in the coming days, the first Dreamliner will be delivered since May of 2021. They've got about 120 Dreamliners that are built waiting to be delivered. They're not going to deliver them all right away. They'll probably uh, move 12 out of that inventory the rest of this year, move another 40 to 60 uh, next year, and then, then you get into 24, and then they will finally have delivered uh, all of the uh, Dreamliners that are in inventory. But this is a huge, huge day uh, for Boeing, whether it's today or tomorrow. That's the expectation that the first Dreamliner will be delivered, the first since May of 2021. It will be going to American Airlines. And they need this, guys. This is a big, big uh, momentum change for them as they move into the second half of this year. It will certainly help as they try to improve their cash flow. Yeah, you know, you know, Phil, you mentioned it was a big, big day for them. Obviously, Boeing's had a lot of questions about its culture. When's the next meaningful milestone for Boeing coming up? This delivery day, obviously huge. But which investors watch for next? We just saw the big run up on the stock since July 1st. Well, you want to see uh, continued steadiness in terms of production and deliveries. The supply chain is still fragile, Frank. And I think when you look at the numbers for deliveries in July 26, that's a five-month low. And we've talked with Dave Calhoun about this. They need to have consistent deliveries. And if they can do that, if they can keep production at 31 a month, if the supply chain can remain strong through the remainder of this year, that sets them up potentially to increase production next year, likely the middle of next year. But there are a lot of things that need to improve on the supply chain. Uh, and at this point, they're not ready to increase production. That will be what people will be looking for. All right, our Philip Bo, always with his finger on the pulse of the airline industry. Jim, I'm going to come over to you. I know you own Boeing. What's your take on the numbers that we're seeing today? Um, feeling more enthusiastic. You've been very critical of Boeing in the past, but then you actually kind of reversed course just uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and I've stayed with the stock the whole time, so I, you know when I'm down because I vote with my feet, but I, I'm staying with this one. Two things I want to point out. The reason the 787 delivery resumption is so important is because what it means for free cash flow. When they deliver these planes, they take delivery of a lot of cash. And uh, that will remove the overhang that's been there of will these guys have to do an equity uh, offering here. I think that really comes off the table now. Um, the second thing that I'm looking for, though, is the 737 MAX-10 uh, certification. The FAA has not certified this version of the MAX yet. Uh, they've said they're not going to be able to do so by December, which means Congress has to get involved and authorize an extension of the certification process. Now, I don't want to go into the details of this, but in terms of what I'm looking for next, that's very important because that big Delta order uh, a few weeks ago in Farnborough, that was for the 737 MAX-10. That's a major cash cow in the out years for Boeing. That needs to be certified. 
All right, there we go. Stephanie, you also own uh, Boeing, I believe. Yeah. Where are you at? I mean, obviously a big day for Boeing, but so many choppy days in the past. Yeah, it's been painful. It's been absolutely painful. But I think it started, the turnaround started when they reported earnings. They beat EBIT um, on the commercial side, and that was encouraging. The free cash flow was $900 million better than expected. Um, and as Phil just mentioned, I mean, this and, and Jim, free cash flow, that's what the stock trades at. By the way, it also that's what also uh, GE trades the same, right? And they're a supplier to Boeing. It's all about free cash flow. And both companies in this past quarter had better than expected. There is a ways to go, but they're making progress. And the 787 is good news. I think the China recertification of 737 MAX is going to be a bigger deal, but I just don't know when that's going to happen. This is an easy easy trade. You want to trade off that 125 level. Uh, This is a very obvious double bottom in the chart. And if it's not, you'll be out. So try to think of it like a $16 stock where your risk is like 12 and a half bucks. And think about what the potential upside could be. This was like a $400 stock at one point. It, I, don't, I don't think that that's the trade. Um, but from a risk-reward perspective, I think it's a very clear line. The buyers came in, did not make a new low below that February 2020 low. Now you've got an assault on the 200-day, which is still declining, but so what? If we could snap this downtrend in Boeing, not take a lot of downside risk, I think the risk-reward is in your favor um, from a trading standpoint, at least. All right, big day for Boeing. Still shares down about three-quarters of a percent at this time. All right, coming up, energy, top performer today, but the biggest laggard this month. And one big investor is boosting their ownership in the space. The committee's top trades in that sector. That's coming up next on Halftime. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Halftime, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, and here's your CNBC News update for this hour. Top congressional Republicans are defending former President Donald Trump after the FBI executed a search warrant at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida as part of an investigation into the handling of potentially classified material. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy warns of an oversight probe if Republicans take back the House this fall. Researchers are seeking thousands of volunteers in the United States and Europe to participate in the test of the first potential vaccine against Lyme disease in 20 years. While a vaccine for dogs has long been available, the only Lyme vaccine for humans was removed from the U.S. market in 2002 because of lack of demand. And French environmentalists will try to move a dangerously thin beluga whale that strayed into the Seine River last week uh, to a saltwater river basin. It will be transported there for a period of care by medics who suspect the mammal is sick. At the very least, the mammal was going up the Seine to get to Paris for dinner. Uh, If the whale responds to treatment, it may finally be released back into the open sea. That's where the real food is, Frank. Back to you. It's like a real-life free willy, Tyler. Yeah, that's right. Look at that. Hope it does well. All right. Tyler Matheson, thank you very much. Well, energy, that's the top performer today, but the worst sector this month, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway sticking with the sector, buying more Occidental Petroleum, now taking its stake to more than 20%. 
Steph, you own it along with a basket of other energy stocks. We're talking Exxon, Kinder Morgan. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, that's Jim. I'm going to read yours this time. Occidental, <laughs> Chevron, Diamondback Energy, and Schlumberger. Yeah. Where are you at with energy overall and Berkshire Hathaway's confidence in Occidental? Does that boost your confidence? Well, sure. It was one of the reasons why I actually added to it. But the story for Oxy is a good story. They do have good assets in the Permian, in the Gulf of Mexico. They do have a cost-cutting plan that in place. They are generating a ton of free cash. They're all generating a ton of free cash, by the way. But these guys have lowered their debt. And now I think they can actually start to buy back stock again or increase the dividend. So, they're one of the last that hasn't done that yet, right? So I like Oxy, a special situation story. Uh, I, I like having that company in terms of or joining the company with Buffett. But I like the other names as well. Chevron, great yield, quality com a company, a kind of um, low beta, if you will. Diamondback has high juice, high beta, but it's a great EMP name, and they've been returning sh uh, cash to shareholders as well. And Schlumberger is like a hidden technology company. So I'm double the benchmark right now. Anastasia, over to you. Where are you at with energy? Um, one other factor in the energy trade right now a lot of people aren't talking about is that hurricane season's coming up. Um, a hurricane can definitely impact production and sometimes even demand. Where are you seeing energy right now? Uh, that's right. I mean, I like the energy trade a lot. Uh, took a little bit of profits earlier in the year, but I like coming back to it. And one of the reasons is the one you just mentioned is that we are actually expecting an above average hurricane season, uh, according to the NOIA. And so that to, that, that could cause uh, a lot of disruption in the Gulf of Mexico. So that's the near-term catalyst. But longer term, what I'm looking at is demand for energy is still solid. And if we manage to skirt a recession, that oil WTI brand should be trading right around current levels. And by the way, the reason why the market is somewhat balanced right now is because the global of the, because of the global strategic petroleum reserve releases. But that's going to come come out of the market come October. And how exactly are we going to replace that? We don't have the answer for that. So I think it's still a tightly balanced market. Oil should be around current levels if we avoid a recession. And as Steph was saying, this is very good for the cash flow of these companies. And then, Frank, I'll just add one other point. Have you looked at the price of natural gas lately in Europe versus the price of it in the U.S.? There's a huge wedge between that. And to the extent that there's further disruptions to natural gas supply in Europe, then you can see gas to oil substitution in Europe. And once again, that's going to be an extra source of demand for oil. So I think there's a lot of positive catalysts ahead can for I, oil. Can, can I just stock. build on that? I, I, think what, I think what Anastasia just said is so important. It's an inevitability that they're going to play games with the gas supply in Europe this, this fall and winter. We already know. There's like literally no way around it. Almost nothing could happen that would stop that. So when you think about natural gas selling at 50 in Europe and $8 in the United States, you ask yourself, well, who's making that money in the middle? So I put on Chenier Energy as uh, a relatively new holding a couple of weeks ago. I said, I'm breaking one of my rules. I'm anticipating a breakout. Um, that was like 140 or something. All right, so fine. It actually is breaking out right now, uh, 147 and a half right now. Um, that would be a, a new record high should it continue to move higher. Um, this is a company that's going to have, I think, over the next three years, really unlimited demand. The more they can get through the terminals, the more they can get to Asia and Europe, the more money they'll make. And, you know, a hurricane could be disruptive. Maybe that's my downside risk. But I think from a from a thematic standpoint, this is one of the more obvious bull markets that we're going to see. And there are very few stocks that directly play it. Chenier Energy is like right in the sweet spot of what's about to happen this fall. So, Jim, over to you. Uh, Josh, sounds like you're playing that global demand imbalance. Jim, are you still bullish on energy? I was thinking of you earlier. Obviously, you actually own ExxonMobil, Kinder Morgan and Transocean. 
Yeah, and I agree with everything that's been said, so I'm not going to repeat it. But I do think that if you're not in energy and you wonder how to get in, ExxonMobil and Chevron Texaco are the easiest way to get in. And together, they're almost half of the XLE uh, to begin with. If you want to be safer than that, you can buy a pipeline company like Kinder Morgan, which is more yield oriented. Um, one stock that I own personally, but I don't own for clients, is the highest beta that I can find to oil, uh, which is Transocean. Now, I don't own this for clients because the balance sheet on this company is about as ugly as you could possibly be and still be solvent, all right? So that's why if you're a client and you're watching me, you're saying, why don't I own it? Just that's the answer. But if you want the highest beta to oil, you watch day rates on those offshore rigs, they're going higher and it's kind of a foot race. Can those day rates go high enough, quick enough that Transocean can pay down its debt? All right, there we go. Uh, oil actually trading below $100 a barrel right now. Um, Brent at 96, WTI at 90. All right, coming up, Coinbase shares falling ahead of earnings tonight, halftime, back in two minutes. Stay with us. And welcome back to Halftime. Coinbase shares down almost 10% right now, near the lows of the day. Our Kate Rooney joins us with a preview of tonight's earnings. Hey there, Kate. Hey, Frank. Yeah, Wall Street is expecting a bad quarter and a bad second quarter for Coinbase. The question is, how bad will it be? Coinbase trading volumes are disclosed pretty much in real time. And as crypto prices crashed, JMP Securities estimates volumes were down more than 30% in the quarter. Account growth is expected to be light thanks to those lower prices. Slower growth and trading activity also tends to signal lower transaction fee revenue, which still drives the bulk of Coinbase's bottom line. Investors will be closely watching something they call the mix. That's the makeup of the retail versus the institutional side of the business. Retail tends to bring in higher fees, usually up to 2%. The institutional side, meanwhile, has lower fees, but is getting a bit more attention lately after Coinbase announced a big partnership with BlackRock. Then the take rate, that is the spread Coinbase earns per transaction. The bear case for Coinbase has been that fees on the retail side will erode with more competition. Coinbase has been one of the most shorted stocks in recent weeks, and there's fears around an SEC crackdown as well. The bull case, though, for Coinbase has been that company moving beyond trading and diversifying revenue with things like staking or its NFT business. More cost-cutting would also be seen as a positive for that stock. Frank. Thanks a lot, Kate. Kate Rooney out in our San Francisco bureau. Uh, Josh, can I come over to you? Hard to even get past the point where you said trading volumes down 30%. Not sure if there's much more conversation to have there. You also you're, you sold us, you know, we're in commercial breaks, so hope it's okay. Um, you don't think the Black Rock deal is that big of a deal? There's nothing in it. Like, just read, like read one paragraph. It's a, it's a data feed that Coinbase will provide to BlackRock clients who use Aladdin for risk management. So they'll be able to pull in data from their Coinbase account, who cares? Um, Wait, trading volume's down 30%? That didn't raise your eyebrow at all? Well, the price, the price is down. Look, go look at a six-month chart of Coinbase and Bitcoin, and then ask yourself, why would you buy Coinbase? If you want to be bullish on crypto and express a view on crypto, just buy Bitcoin. It's the same thing. You actually had more volatility in Coinbase, and you have the potential for execution 
uh, failures on the part of management, regulatory risk, all the stuff that um, becomes unnecessary. Look, I used to have the same debate with people who were bullish on gold, and then they would buy these horrifically managed Canadian gold mining stocks. And it's like, why are you... What kind of a masochist are you? What's wrong with you? Just buy gold if you're bullish gold. So I feel the same way with this. It could turn out that Coinbase successfully expands its business beyond just did Bitcoin go up or down this month. And that will be great. But that's just not where we are. They launched NFTs. It was DOA. Um, A lot of the other coins that were high volume coins on the platform are now under scrutiny. And we know for a fact, based on hundreds of years of financial history, that whatever margins they were getting for trading Bitcoin two years ago will be lower next year, the year after that, the year after that. Equity trading is now a free business on Wall Street. So those margins aren't going to come back. So if you know all of these things and you're still bullish on um, cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, just buy cryptocurrency, just buy Bitcoin. Anastasia, over to you. What's your take on Coinbase? I mean, when the company first went public, a lot of people saw it. A lot of upside because there was so much enthusiasm from retail traders, especially. Where are you at with this stock right now? Well, I think what's been the case for Coinbase and other exchanges is likely not repeatable in the near term. And what I mean by that, there's been a huge uh, catalyst of very easy Fed and ultra easy monetary policy and a lot of speculation. And that's what's propelled these outsized trading volumes that we saw uh, last year. And that's not the case today. They may not be the case for the next year. I mean, you don't have an immediate catalyst, I think, for something like Bitcoin to trade higher or or Ethereum and others. So I think anybody who's expecting this to go back to the prior levels, I don't think that should be the expectations for the stock here. Having said that, uh, we are believers longer term in the crypto ecosystem, and I think there's many different ways to approach it. To Josh's point, if you look at the trading volumes of crypto, they're down. But if you look at the number of wallets, for example, for uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're actually continuing to move higher. So I would say uh, it is not just focusing on the exchanges because there's also a lot of competitions for exchanges in both public and private markets, but it's focusing on the broader ecosystem is what I would do here. Yeah, and Coinbase falling about a percent since we started this conversation. Not saying it's the reason why, but interesting that investors are getting uh, more and more bearish on it, even as we're just having this conversation. All right, Santoli's Midday Word is up next. Plus, we'll get you ready for earnings from when after the bell. Stay with Halftime. Much more coming up. All right. Welcome back to Halftime Report. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli joins us now from the NYSE with his midday word. Hey, Mike. Yeah. Hey, Frank. I mean, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing in the market is a very intuitive, logical, maybe predictable pause. Uh, S&P's been sideways now for about eight trading sessions. Maybe it doesn't feel that way because we were riding this, you know, three straight weeks of gains. Uh, I think it's no big deal that we are pulling back a little bit in advance of the CPI number. You're seeing some pretty decent rotation holding the indexes aloft. But I I think it uh, also makes sense to question whether, in fact, uh, we can have just a routine pullback, which would, let's say, get the S&P back down two or three more percent to the downside and then uh, kind of find its footing from there. Because previously this year, every time we've had one of those dips, it has kind of broken to something else. So we haven't had really strong rallies that didn't start with really oversold conditions and really negative sentiment. And we've just seen this multi-week burst of short covering. So now it's a little bit of a test ahead of the CPI. I'm not sure that's going to be the deal maker or breaker when it comes to what the Fed's going to do. But obviously, it's the last known macro catalyst. Markets kind of cruising up to it in a sort of neutral uh, position right now. 
All right, Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli, we appreciate the midday insight. Yep. All right, coming up, shares of Wynn Resorts down ahead of earnings after the close. We've got some ownership right here on the desk. The trade coming up next right here on Halftime. And welcome back. Wynn Resorts for lower ahead of earnings in just a few hours. Miss Las Vegas herself, Miss, I can't get the words out. I wanted to say this to you, Contessa. Miss Las Vegas herself, Contessa Brewer here with more on what investors need to watch. Contessa, how's it going? You can't, you can't always bet on the words when you need them. See what I did there? You know, uh, Frank, we can glean a lot about Wynn's second quarter from its competitors' reports. For instance, Sands and MGM showed Macau is still under immense pressure from COVID travel restrictions. The street expects Wynn Macau to show a loss of $7 million in adjusted property EBITDA. That's the key earnings metric in the casino industry. But consensus is almost $250 million in adjusted EBITDA from its Las Vegas and Boston properties. This is such a switch to see them out-earning Macau. Caesars and MGM reported results from Las Vegas that just crushed expectations, set new records in their Vegas results. It was driven especially by the upper echelon of customers. And of course, that is Wynn's core base. Now, we know that June set a new record for air travel into Las Vegas. What will not be reflected in Wynn's second quarter results after the bell, the impact of international travel really resuming to Las Vegas in July, and the closures, complete closures of those casinos in Macau for nearly two weeks. We may get more details about that on the earnings call, however. CEO Craig Billings told me last month that he's positive on Macau, not if, but when it experiences the kind of rebound trajectory that Las Vegas has seen. And so we may get some sense of just as the restrictions start lessening what's happening in Macau. Frank? Our Contessa Brewer. Maybe I'll start calling you Miss Macau. It's a little easier to get out. Contessa Brewer, thanks for that report. <laughs> All right, Jim and Steph, you both own Win. Jim, I'm going to start with you. Where are you at with the casino business, gambling in general? Yeah, well, Contessa just really nailed the whole story. This is a U.S. story. And Las Vegas statistics, uh, there's a, uh, a group out there that publishes those statistics with a one-month lag. If you looked at June numbers, which are the most recent, I mean, they were really just ripping the cover off the ball. And that's when gasoline was as high as it was. So the fears that, uh, you know, gasoline would keep people from gambling, from coming to Las Vegas, that didn't happen. And with Wynn Resorts, this is a U.S. story. Obviously, they have the Macau operations, but the shutdowns have been going on for the better part of a year. Um, that's not in the stock at this point in time. This is a stock that I think is undervalued on the basis of Las Vegas and Boston. If Macau ever comes through, that's just additive to the story. All right, the farmer there, a uh, little negative on the casino business. All right, final trades coming uh, up no, next on no Halftime. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, final trades, but first over you, Farmer Jim. I mischaracterized what you're saying. I don't know if I misspoke, Frank. Thanks for coming back to me, but I'm very positive on the casino business in the U.S. That was the main thrust. Macau will come back whenever Macau comes back, but I'm positive on the casino business. All right, clarity right there. All right, let's get your final trade as well. Uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, it, it's breaking out as are the financials. You got a good CPI number. Maybe the curve uh, gets a little less inverted and uh, things could look very good for Goldman Sachs and the financials as a whole. All right, Stephanie, over to you. 
IFF. They beat on earnings and revenues. They guided in line because of inflation. The stock is down 4%. I'm a buyer of the weakness. All right, downtown Josh Brown. I think the IEO names can stick it, stick it out through the end of the year in rally mode. All right, we're going to take one last look at the markets before we get going right now. Markets have been trading lower all day. Right now, I'm going to assume it is. We're going to wait for it just to pop up right here. <laughs> Still all down. Oh, there we go. There we go. Uh, Dow down fractionally. The S&P down about a half a percent. The Nasdaq, the hardest Nasdaq's hit. Cool. Chip stocks weighing on the Nasdaq right now, down about one and a half percent. And that is going to do it for the halftime report. The Exchange with Kelly Evans. It begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.